Well, good morning, everyone. Okay, you guys are not awake yet, obviously. Uh, but hey, your sweaters look amazing. Uh, I, will, I will say that. Uh, I've gotten several comments on my sweater. Uh, thought we had to commemorate the first selfie. Uh, you know, so yes, it's Mary, Joseph, Jesus taking a selfie. I, I apologize if you think it's sacrilegious. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, so, and I just want to say also thank you to you because uh, for pastor appreciation, you guys gave me a $50 gift card at Amazon. So this is what you get. So if you don't like it, this is your fault. Uh, all right. Uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron, uh, teaching pastor here. And uh, yes, it is Ugly Sweater Sunday, but more importantly, it is the second Sunday of Advent. And I'm really glad you've chosen and able to join us today, because I think today, for some of you, could be a really uh, important day. Well, um, the past few years have been uh, a little disappointing uh, to me, because I've been learning that all of these famous quotes that I've been using and reciting throughout my life are actually wrong or, or inaccurate. And it, it's just been really, really sad to learn. Let, let me give you a couple examples. All right? If I were to ask you to quote from The Empire Strikes Back, where uh, Darth Vader is having his big sword battle with Luke, what is the famous line that Darth Vader says? No, I... See, there's one of the 17% out there. <laughs> Most of you would say, Luke, I am your father. Right? It's just become part of our world. However, it's not what he said. As Clay, the wise one, just said, it is, no, I am your father. Right? Somehow, our world believes that he says Luke. He doesn't. And yet, polls show that 83% of people think he says Luke. Only 17% get it right. He doesn't say Luke, so now you all know, and now you can have your uh, bit of trivia at uh, your Christmas trivia uh, party. Another example, Sherlock Holmes. Many of you know that the famous Sherlock Holmes uh, uh, quote, uh, elementary, my dear Watson. However, the author, Sir Arthur Cannon Doyle, not once used that phrase in his books, ever. It is believed to have come from a 1901 parody piece that ran in a newspaper that was about Shylock Combs, and he says to his uh, uh, sidekick, elementary, my dear Potson, the, the thing that we thought we all knew, it's not accurate. Now, the reason I bring this up is because I had it happen to me yet again this week. Last week, as we were getting ready for this Advent series about Christmas clothes, I had this quote, a Mark Twain quote. It's brilliant, it's funny, and I was going to use it last week, and in a moment you'll understand why I was going to use it last week as we were looking at Adam and Eve. However, I decided to save it for this week. I was going to use it as my introduction because I just thought, I'm not naturally funny. This is funny. This will help me bring something funny to the Riverwood family. But then that week's delay led me to discover that Twain never wrote this. So you're probably wondering, what's the quote? Here it is. I knew it as clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. That's funny. That's hilarious. That's brilliant. It's also fake. It turns out that Samuel L. Clemens, writing under his pen name of Mark Twain, wrote a short story called The Czar's Soliloquy. A czar, C-Z-A-R. 
in this little short story, this czar stands before a mirror, stark naked, and he gives this monologue, this soliloquy. And in there it says this, what would man be? What would any man be without his clothes? As soon as one stops and thinks over that proposition, one realizes that without his clothes, a man would be nothing at all. That the clothes do not merely make the man, the clothes are the man. That without them, he is a cipher, a vacancy, a nobody, a nothing. Just a, a paragraph or two later, the czar says, the power is in the clothes. Now, you kind of understand what Twain's going after here. He's, he's riffing off of that famous phrase, clothes make the man. And yet, a lot of us are saying, eh, no, actually they don't. Well, studies show that they do. Did you know that high school and college students who dress up for tests perform better on their tests than their, their peers who just merely wear everyday wear and way better than those who wear just the comfy clothes. So students, next time you want to do well on a test, dress up. Try to look more professional. And you will perform better. This is why so many businesses ask their employees to abide by a dress code. Some even go far as far as to have some sort of uniform. Because if you dress more professionally, you dress the part, you will treat the, the customers or the clients better. There will be a better culture. You'll, you'll treat one another better within the business because clothes make the man. And yet, when we said that phrase, I saw some heads shake, no, because we also know, no, clothes don't make the man. Like if I just suddenly put on a baseball uniform, you would not immediately think, whoa, Aaron's made the major leagues. Like, we just know it wouldn't happen. If you suddenly put on military fatigues, it doesn't automatically put you in the army. Now, if you want to join the army, go and talk to Ed. He's a National Guard recruiter. He'd love to include you in. But just putting on the army fatigues doesn't accomplish it. If your grandma puts on a karate gi and carries shooting, throwing stars, she's not a ninja. Clothes do not make the man. And yet, if I came up here in a baseball uniform, you'd probably assume that I'm, uh, you know, trying to get ready for Halloween for next year. Or maybe you'd say, well, Aaron's trying to wear a disguise. A disguise is you putting on something to try to look like someone else, to fool other people into thinking you're something that you're not. Many people will put on these outward disguises to hide who they are, but all of us will put on internal disguises. Let me give you an example. Any of you ever been going through a rough patch? Maybe you just you know, not doing well um, financially, not doing well with, in a relationship. Uh, you, you, you find yourself depressed, you know, just fighting a, a mental health battle. Th things aren't going well. And yet, when someone asks you, hey, how you doing? You answer, great, good, I'm fine. Don't raise your hand. But if you've done that, you've put on an emotional disguise. And what's really sad to me is I sometimes worry that church is the place where we wear the most emotional disguises. 
That for somehow we think that, well, because we have this great sovereign God and because Jesus died on the cross for us, we have to pretend like everything is absolutely perfect. And so to walk in the door, we put on an emotional disguise. I've also discovered that some of us will put on spiritual disguises. When I was a kid, I went to church and I, I just had this, this draw towards God. I, I wanted to know God. I, I loved Jesus. And so I just, I just felt this pull to him. And yet it was not cool to be religious. And so when I was with my friends, I tried to downplay the importance of God in my life. I, in a sense, put on a spiritual disguise. I didn't want to be seen as odd for God. So I tried to pretend to be something that I was not. At the same time, I've met people who, the instant they find out that I am a pastor, immediately change their language. Before, all sorts of four-letter words were coming out of their mouth. Afterwards, they're telling me the church that they go to. Sometimes they don't remember the name of their church. They don't even remember the name of their pastor, but they go to church. They know the Bible. They believe in a God. They try to be something that they're not. They put on a spiritual disguise. Some of you, maybe you're feeling a little convicted because you realize, hey, I've, I've been wearing an emotional disguise this year, this decade, <laughs> my whole life. Some of you, you realize, oh man, I'm about to be exposed because I've been wearing a spiritual disguise. I've been coming, showing up, you know, tuning in, trying to pretend to be something I, I, I'm not. And so you're thinking that today is going to be one of arm twisting, guilt, conviction, Actually, today, I have good news for you. In fact, I have good news, and I have great news. That's right, not a good news, bad news scenario. Today, I have good news, and I have even better news. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you today some good news out of the scriptures, and I'm also going to then take you to a place of great news. Now, to get from the good news to the great news, we're going to have to go through a valley, we're going to go through a scandal. And, and as we go into that valley, some of you will get just a little bit uncomfortable. You're going to hear some things about God that you, you might not necessarily like. You're going to find yourself wanting to squirm just a little bit. But we have to wrestle with the scandal because as we come through the scandal, it's going to lead us to this great news. And I think some of that great news will help some of you worship God like never before during this Christmas season. So to join me on this journey from good news to great news through the valley of scandal, open up your Bible to Genesis 27. Genesis chapter 27. We are going to read uh, quite a bit of Genesis 27. Um, and I want to make sure that all of you are able to track right along with what we're going to hear. So let me give you some background. Let me kind of set the stage. Back in Genesis 24, we meet a couple named Isaac and Rebecca. We get to see them meet, they get married. And then in chapter 25, we see God bless them with twin boys. The first son born, they name Esau. Uh, the, the word Esau sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for hairy. When, when he was born, not only was he kind of ruddy, uh, red in complexion, but he just was uniquely hairy. You know, kind of probably had as much hair, if not more than baby Jesus on my sweater. Right? So, so he comes out and they all kind of like, whoa, <laughs> we don't usually see babies with that much hair. And, and so they name him Esau. Well, as Esau is being born, the second kid in the womb 
is holding on to the heel of his older brother. Now, they name him Jacob because Jacob is a very noble name. It's a Hebrew name, meaning he will protect. Now, they probably hoped and desired that he would, you know, help protect the family, the family traditions, the family, you know, reputation. But, but also, as the second born, he would take on the role of protecting his older brother because his older brother was going to take that lead and he's going to need someone who's going to have his back. So they give him a noble name, Jacob. But it is also just a little play on words because the last half of the name Jacob in Hebrew sounds very similar to the word for heel. And because this cute little baby's holding on to his brother as he's being born as if to say, no, don't leave me. Everyone's like, oh, look at that. It's so cute. He's holding on to the heel. We'll name him Jacob. And so, yeah, his name on the surface means he will protect, but underneath it's like a, a little secret inside joke. It means he who grasps the heel. But therein lies a problem. Because in Hebrew, the phrase, he who grasps the heel, is a euphemism for someone who uses deception and trickery. The idea that you trip someone up. And so, yeah, it's supposed to mean he will protect, but underneath, it's he will be deceptive. I don't think they meant for him to take on that meaning of his name. But as you read his story, you see that is more of who he is. Rather than being someone who seeks first to protect his older brother Esau, to protect his family's reputation, we see him engage in trickery and deception, trying to get things for himself. The first place we see this happen is at the end of chapter 25. Uh, Moses, the author of, of Genesis, is, is moving us through the story. So we see them born early in 25. But by the end, they're, they're adults. They're, they're older. And there's a story where Esau walks in and he's like, and, and, and I imagine, you know, he's, he's really hairy. He's kind of red in his complexion. He's a manly man. He loves to hunt. I, I, I just imagine, you know, he grunts a lot, scratches certain places, you know. So he walks in and goes, I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. And in my mental picture, Jacob's over there standing next to the stove, got a big pot of stew, and he's stirring it, and he's wearing his apron, and he's kind of skinny. He looks a little wimpy. looks kind of like me. And, you know, he's, he's sitting there stirring it. It turns out this mental image is all wrong. The uh, IVP Bible background commentary says that at this time they're adults and they're, they're leading within their father's household and their family were shepherds. Well, you can't just let sheep graze in one area constantly. They'll, they'll end up destroying the land. So you're, you're constantly having to move them around. So most likely what's happened is mom and dad have stayed back with a few servants back at the, the main headquarters and, and Jacob and Esau have led the family and, and the other servants of that out and about. Well, because Esau loves being outside, he's going from, from flock to flock, checking in with the shepherds to see what they need, where they're headed next, what the plan is, and he's, he's checking in. So he's spent the whole day out and possibly not eaten anything all day. Jacob, in the meantime, is a leader and he's leading back at home. Someone's got to make sure that things are coming together because they're going to be taking food out to these shepherds or maybe the shepherds are going to be coming back in. And so they've got to have food prepared. Maybe they're going to end up having to mend some, some things or wash some clothing. So they need someone there just to help make sure that everything's happening. So he's running the operation back at their, their mobile headquarters. And so when Esau comes in, it's not that little feeble Jacob's there stirring the pot of stew. It's that he... Walks, stomps in. It's like, oh, I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. And Jacob probably rolls his eyes like, oh, Esau. 
And so then it's a joke. Jacob just says, yeah, you bet. I can give you some stew. I mean, we're going to be serving everyone's stew in like an hour. But if you want some early, sell me your birthright. And Esau's response is, what good's a birthright if I die of starvation? And I think Jacob in that moment realizes, I can grasp my brother's heel. I can trick him. I can use this moment. And so he looks at his brother and goes, no, I'm serious. If you want a bowl of stool, an hour or two earlier than everyone else, sell me the birthright. Give it to me. Whoa, it's not going to matter. And he does, gives it off. Now, in Esau's mind, he may be thinking, well, mom and dad aren't here to witness this. No one's going to know. And yet, he took it so casually, doesn't hold to his responsibility, and ends up saying, all right, just give me some food. You can have this dumb birthright. That's the first place we see Jacob begin to live up to his name. But the story gets even worse because now we're not only going to see him trick his brother, we see him go as far as to try to grasp the heel of his dad. So if your Bible is now open to Genesis 27, join me at verse 1 and uh, sit back and listen in to story time. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, uh, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food such as I love. And bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare them uh, from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall be seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. And his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. And so he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house and put them on Jacob her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, my father? And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now, now sit up and, and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? 
He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, oh, I, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Well, then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near him and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of Esau's garments and blessed Jacob and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. What a story. We see Jacob at the end of 25 trick his brother in just a short little spontaneous moment to get the birthright. But now we see him be part of this big plan to trick his father into getting the blessing that was due the firstborn. You see, when a, a parent would die, the, the firstborn would take the mantle within the home, would oversee everything. Now, there were certain portions that would be divvied out among the other siblings, but the, the older son would receive the, the large majority of it and would, would assume that mantle. With it came prestige, honor, prominence, wealth, respect. You, you basically took on your father's identity. And so it was a big, big deal. And yet Jacob's now just swooped in and stolen it. It's like he just took Esau, toppled him off, and took the throne. This was, in a sense, a coup. Now, as I said, I'm going to share with you some good news and some great news. But before we can get to that, let me just explain a couple of things. First of all, Esau is not actually on his deathbed. He thinks he is. I mean, he's going blind. He's feeling feeble. And so he's starting to think, man, the end might be coming near. Truth be told, he actually ends up living another 80 years. Now, he doesn't know when his last day is. You don't know when your last day is. But he's starting to see signs that his last day might be a little closer than he would prefer. Now, I suspect that he knows that his son, Esau, manly man, great hunter, just, you know, oh, yeah, is not exactly the brightest bulb in the chandelier. So maybe he's being proactive, saying, you know what? I'm going to bless him, make him the head of the household so that I can basically like mentor him and teach him to set him up before that day. 
And so he decides to create this little ceremony, this like baton handoff. Go hunt, get some game, bring it to me. And as I eat of it, then I will bless you. And so he's not about to die. He's just simply being proactive. Another thing I want to point out to you, um, but to, to point this out, I want you to use your imagination. Imagine for just a second that you have an opportunity to meet a celebrity. But not just any celebrity. I don't want you thinking of like, you know, who, who's the most popular movie star right now or best-selling artist. I want you to meet a celebrity that you respect. Someone that you really admire. You admire what they've been able to achieve, all, all that they have. Right? So, so get that celebrity in your mind. Now, you get an opportunity to ask this celebrity one question. Just one. I highly doubt you're going to waste your question asking them what they had for breakfast. Most likely, you're going to ask them for advice. You might explain a little bit of your life and, and ask for some of their wisdom. You might ask them, what was some of the greatest advice they got that helped them get to where they're at? Or maybe, what was one of the hardest things they had to go through you get to ask your one question and you bet you're going to listen. And as they share the wisdom, as they share this advice, as they share it with you, you're going to hold on to that and no one can take that away from you. Now I want you to take that moment, that wisdom, what you've received, and I want you to multiply it by a million. That's what the blessing of Isaac was in the mind of not just Isaac, but Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob. His words were not just words. This was binding. Even though Isaac thought he was giving it to Esau, it ends up going to Jacob. And it could not be removed. It wasn't just, oh, whoa, 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 that, that's not what I meant. In their minds... Just as no one could take the advice you got from your celebrity, no one, absolutely no one could take away this blessing from Jacob. The coup was accomplished. Things had been upturned. Jacob is now the firstborn. He's gotten the birthright over soup, and now he's gotten the blessing from dad. Now, if we were to have kept reading, we would discover that just moments after this happens, Esau walks in. As Jacob is in there feeding his father, tricking him, Esau has had a successful hunt. He's already back. He's been cooking and preparing everything. And Jacob slips out, and just moments later, Esau walks in. Hey, Dad, I'm here. Like, wait, wait, wait. No, you, you were just here. Oh, what, what do you mean? No, I just showed up, Dad. And Esau discovers what his brother has done. And so this story is not good news for Esau. At all. But there is good news in the story for you. Here's the good news. Jacob is just like you. You are just like Jacob. Now you, you might be wondering, wait, how, how is that good news? Because like right now, Jacob sounds like a jerk. He sounds selfish. I mean, he's, he's basically stealing what isn't his. How is this good news, Aaron? Well, to explain it, let me show you how you are like him. First of all, he was wearing a disguise. You and I, we've already said we wear disguises. But the thing is, 
He rationalized his disguise. And so do we. Now, he probably rationalized his by saying, well, it wasn't my idea. This was mom's. But he can't say, well, you know, I'm a kid. I got to obey my mommy. No, he's 40 years old. At the end of chapter uh, 26, second to last verse, we see Esau is 40. Well, if Esau is 40, Jacob's 40. So this is an adult. He's been serving. All right, he's got roles and responsibilities. So he could look at his mom and say, Mom, I love you. I want to honor you. I respect you. But if God wants me to have this position, I don't have to do that. Let's trust God to do what needs to be done. But he doesn't. The fact that he goes along with it means he agrees. And that's the second rationalization. Because somewhere in there, he's thinking, my brother's going to be a bad leader of the household. Like the dude just can't manage anything. He's too selfish. He's not too bright. This is going to be a train wreck. If I'm going to be Jacob, he who will protect, I need to protect the family. And so we got to usurp him. We got to kick him out. We got to do something. He justified it and rationalized it. We do the exact same thing. When we're not doing well, but we tell people, oh yeah, I'm good, I'm fine. We rationalize it. You know, I just don't want to you know, bother them with this. I don't want to have to explain everything. They won't understand. We, we have all sorts of justifications for the disguises. We think it's okay to put this on. You're probably still wondering, but Aaron, where's the good news in this? Here it is. If God could use Jacob, God can use you. If God could use Jacob despite what he's done, God can use you despite what you have done. If God could go on and use Jacob to create the nation of Israel, because later Jacob ends up wrestling with an angel, struggles with him, and in that process receives a new name. Instead of being Jacob, he who deceives, he becomes Israel, he who wrestles with God. And that becomes the mark of an entire people. And if God could use a guy like that, God can most definitely use a person like you. That's good news. Your mistakes, your weaknesses, the things you've done and the things done to you do not have to define you. God has given you every opportunity to be defined by his worst moment. The cross. That's good news. But as we work through the story, we need to realize that there is a scandal in the middle of it. You're probably thinking the scandal is Jacob's actions. And you're, you're right, that was a scandal. I mean, if you continue to read Jacob and Esau's story, you, you'll see later that there's going to come a time where they're going to actually see each other once again. Because Jacob is up fleeing for his life. Esau says he's going to kill his brother. He flees for his life, ends up going off, marries a woman, but it ends up not being the right woman. So he ends up marrying another woman, and it's a whole messy story. And eventually, there's going to come this point where he's going to come back and, and basically take back over as the head of household. And he's going to meet Esau. And he's fearing for his life. I mean, it is a whole drama because of the scandal. But that's not the scandal I'm referring to. There's actually a much larger scandal in this, you guys. I mean, it, it's huge, and it's uncomfortable. The scandal is that God 
not only allowed this story to happen, it almost seems as if God made it happen. It feels like God blessed the deception. Because it's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's almost like God sanctified the lie. That he approved of the fraud. But that goes against what we know of God. I mean, the God we worship, as we see in Scripture, he's a God of justice. He's he's a God of fairness. He's a God of righteousness. And as we look at Jacob's actions, this does not seem just. This does not seem fair. Nothing about this is right. And yet God seems to be approving of it. That's a scandal. And yet that scandal ends up pointing to the greatest news you and I could ever hear. Because that scandal actually points to the biggest scandal. That you and I, grave sinners who do not deserve the love of God, have received his love. That's the great news. The great news is that God loves you and has given everything to you. In fact, he's given you the disguise of Jesus. In Galatians chapter 3, God inspired the apostle Paul to write this sentence. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, I'm using the English Standard Version today. That's what I use most Sundays. And that, the way they translate this, it's, it's good, it's fine. But when I did a parallel search comparing this to other translations, I noticed that almost, other trans, almost all the other translations used a different phrase. If you're using a different translation this morning, you're probably seeing that phrase. Instead of saying, put on Christ, as the ESV has it, most other translations translate it that you have clothed yourself with Christ. And I think that's, a little better. In other words, if you are a Jesus follower, if you have put your faith in Jesus, if you have been baptized, identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection, you say it all goes to him, you have now been clothed with Christ. And that is not just good news, that is great news, but it's a scandal. You didn't earn anything to get those clothes. No, Instead of mom sneaking into big brother's closet to grab his clothing so you will smell like your big brother, this is your heavenly father going into your big brother Jesus' closet, taking off his robe of righteousness and clothing you with Christ so that you will smell like Jesus, you will seem like Jesus, you will look like Jesus, you will live like Jesus, and you will love like Jesus. That's the scandal. But that is great news. You do not have to be identified by your deception, by your failings, by your sin. You can be identified by Christ, by his righteousness. You have been clothed with Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, I hope this will lead you to thank him, that this will humble you, this will cause you to worship And this will make this Christmas one of the greatest Christmases ever. 
And if you're not a follower of Jesus, that you'd realize this is an invitation. That you do not have to be defined by the sins you've done or the sins committed against you. That instead, you can be defined by the one who went to the cross, died your death, paid your penalty, so that you could be forgiven and freed. And the Father would love nothing more than to take the clothing of Christ and put it on you. This disguise, it's not a temporary one designed to trick your father. This disguise is a permanent one given by your father. And it isn't just to make you appear to be something that you're not. It is to help change you from the inside out. And so, if you're not a follower of Jesus, whether you're, you're here in person or you're joining us online or listening to the podcast, would you just join me in prayer and pray this? Heavenly Father, I just pray right now for the person that is realizing your love for them, that, that you died for them, that Jesus, you rose again from the dead, and that you are now inviting them to put their life into you so that they might be clothed with Christ. Father, would you hear them right now as they pray? Would you hear them as they confess their sin? Would you hear them as they call out to you? Would you hear them as they give their life to follow you? And Heavenly Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ those who have known the story of Jesus, knowing that he didn't just come to be a baby, born into a manger, born to a poor couple, to live in a, a small little town that had a bad reputation, but then went on to, to live the only sinless life ever to be lived and die on a cross. They, they've known this story. This is a part of them. And yet they are struggling. They are wrestling with sin. There's part of them that is wanting to put on disguises. They're wanting to put on a disguise, making it look like everything's just fine. They're wanting to put on a disguise that makes it look like they're holier than they are. And God, I just pray right now you would help them to allow you to take away those false disguises and you would give them Christ. That they would realize that's their true identity. Lord, I, I pray for my brother and sister in Christ that knows the story, but has never gone public with it. They, they've never been baptized. They've never said it aloud to others. They've, they've just tried to make this their own private little thing. And, and today, I pray that they would hear you saying, give it all to me because I gave it all for you. Let it be known. Let this be your identity. Let everyone see that you are clothed with Christ. Father, for the person who's stuck right now fighting an addiction or, or fighting a, a, a battle in their mental health, finds themselves in a really difficult relationship right now. The, right now, they're worried about what Christmas is going to be like and those conversations with extended family. I pray, Father, that they would realize that they are clothed with Christ, that you are to be their disguise, that when they walk into these situations, that when they give voice to their words and feelings, when they begin to interact, when, when they step into these places, they're not walking in alone that you are with them, you are in them, and you can work through them. So Lord, I pray that you would help them right now to just come to you, 
to confess anything that they've been holding on to, to let you rip away their, their false disguises and let themselves be identified fully and foremost by you and your sacrifice, Jesus. And Lord, for the person that's been walking in this day in and day out, I pray you'd give them tremendous opportunities to be a blessing, that they, that they would be able to take what you've given them and that they would smell like Jesus, that they'd seem like Jesus, that they'd live like him and love like him, and that through them, you would change someone's world. So, Father, as we go into this time of worship through song, time of worship through communion, time of worship and prayer, help us, no matter where we are at, to, to give it all to you. Whether today is our first day, our spiritual birthday, or today is a, yet again a, a confession of sin, or today is a celebration of who you are and what you've done, help us, Father, right now to bow, not just at, the, at a manger, but before the cross and the empty tomb to thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. And by this, you can clothe us with your righteousness, with your goodness, with your grace, with your character, so that we might be like you, our big brother. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.